0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: This is The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. On Tuesday, New York Attorney General Letitia James announced the findings of an extensive, month long investigation into sexual harassment allegations against New York Governor Andrew Cuomo.
2: Governor Cuomo sexually harassed current and former state employees in violation of both federal and state laws. The Independence investigation found that Governor Cuomo sexually harassed multiple women, many of whom were young women, by engaging in unwanted groping, kisses, hugging, and by making inappropriate comments.
1: Beyond the harassment itself, the Attorney General's office also documented a culture of fear and retaliation created by the governor and those closest to him.
2: The governor and his senior team took actions to retaliate against at least one former employee for coming forward with her story her truth governor cuomo's administration fostered a toxic workplace that enabled harassment and created a hostile work environment where staffers did not feel comfortable coming forward with complaints about sexual harassment due to a climate of fear and given the power dynamics
1: in the wake of the investigation's conclusion, prominent Democrats in and outside of New York have called for Governor Cuomo to step down. That includes President Biden, who was asked by CNN reporter Caitlin Collins about the matter on Tuesday.
0: Back in March, you said that if the investigation confirms the allegations against Governor Cuomo, then he should resign. So will you now call on him to resign,
3: given the investigators said the 11 women were credible?
4: I stand by that statement. Are you now calling on him to resign? Yes.
1: But so far, Andrew Cuomo has completely disregarded those calls. In a video he released on Tuesday, he downplayed the allegations made against him and attempted to undermine the credibility of his accusers.
4: Today, we are living in a superheated, if not toxic, political environment. That shouldn't be lost on anyone. Politics and bias are interwoven throughout every aspect of this situation. One would be naive to think otherwise. And New Yorkers are not naive.
1: With Cuomo staying put for the time being, New York state legislators are gearing up to potentially vote on articles of impeachment against the governor but a full impeachment trial is likely more than a month away. For more, I'm joined now by Gwen Hogan, reporter for WNYC and Gothamist. Gwen, thanks for coming back on the show.
4: Hi, thank you.
1: And also with us is a voice many of you know, Amy Walter, editor-in-chief of The Cook Political Report with Amy Walter and former host of Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. Amy, it's so great to have you back.
0: I am so happy to be here.
1: (laughs) All right, Gwen, I want to start with you. Several women came forward to accuse Governor Cuomo of sexual harassment earlier this year. Can you just sort of walk us through the big pieces of the report put out by the Attorney General's Office?
4: Sure. This sort of outlines in its totality, you know, it corroborates the stories of 11 women. So while some of the broad brushes of the allegations we knew, this sort of documents meticulously with contemporaneous text messages, notes that Cuomo's senior staffers were taking about this this abuse while it was happening. So the evidence is what's really just paints this full picture of a pattern of behavior that, you know, targeted women for abuse and top staffers who enabled it. And secondly, there are some new allegations in this report. Um, One is the story of a state trooper, and she actually did not want to come forward with a story but investigators found her during the course of this investigation and compelled her to testify and basically she had been transferred to Cuomo's personal security detail after he met her at an event even though she didn't meet the minimum requirements for state troopers to work on the security detail at that time they changed the requirement for her He then targeted her with a series of sexual comments about her body, about her clothes, um, about her marriage and her sex drive, and then, you know, escalated with several instances where he touched her body, he rubbed her hands over parts of her body, and other state troopers testified that they witnessed this, you know, these encounters as they were happening. So just overall, it paints this pattern of this toxic environment um, where women were targeted for abuse, and it was enabled.
1: So Amy, if there was a long-term toxic environment, you have people like state troopers seeing this happen. That says to me, on the one hand, yes, this is a Cuomo problem, but it seems like a much bigger problem than that.
0: Right. It's a power problem. And it is not unique, of course, to Governor Cuomo. So many people in power um, had taken the opportunity to abuse that and to create a culture where they're insulated from uh, any sort of retaliation where where they're able to get away with pretty much anything. So this is not something new. What's new and I think what is unique about this moment is that um, they're now being held accountable. What's also different though about this moment is that I think in another era, and maybe era <laughs> I'm using loosely it could have been 10 or 15 years ago, this sort of report and what Gwen laid out is so damning that a, a, a political figure would be shamed out of office, would see this, see the fact that every single supposed ally within his party has abandoned him as a way to step down and, and an opportunity to, quote, unquote, do the right thing. That's not what's happening now. I think that the political era we're in says you stick around and you fight, that your base will never abandon you because they prioritize team over anything else, and that it is not worth, I say worth sort of in quotes here, the cost of stepping down when you can
1: fight against this and politically still come up a winner. I mean, to the extent that that, um, the, like, stick around, uh, it, no matter what is is an era, um, it's got to be one that at least was um, ushered in by um, Bill Clinton, who got impeached and was like, you know what, I'm staying. And then certainly was solidified by President Trump, who was impeached twice and was like, you know what, so what, <laughs> I'm staying. And so it seems to me that it is um, – It's a pretty long political era in some ways, and and one that kind of repeatedly does that work over and against um, the most vulnerable people. Gwen, I want to come to you for just a second on this, because vulnerability is also part of this broader story that we're in. Obviously, New Yorkers need real political, meaningful policy leadership right now. Let's just take, if nothing else, there's a spreading Delta variant in this global pandemic, is anything going to be able to get done while all this madness is happening around Cuomo in the state house?
4: I mean, that's why many of the legislators began calling for his resignation months ago because, you know, we have an understanding that he is in, you know, he has a private attorney who is handling this. You know, his senior staffers are having to answer to these questions all the time. Um, it's it's hard to imagine, especially now after this report comes out and if he pa- faces an impeachment trial, that his remaining staff are going to be doing anything but this. And no, that's one of the biggest sort of, you know, what is really tipping the scales for people is that, yes, we have Delta variant. We have, you know, a looming eviction crisis, like we need the work of government to happen to happen and not to have this sideshow take over.
1: Amy, you were just talking about um, the ability of of legislators, um, you know, to 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 ask him to, or Gwen was just telling us about state legislators asking the uh, the governor to step down, in part because of policy, but I also wonder if their ability to ask him to step down is also political. In other words, is there any sense that the leadership of the state of New York would be anything other than the team, right? In other words, Democrats.
0: Right. I mean, when he steps down, there's not the political worry that this is going to embolden Republicans or benefit Republicans, right? It's not a swing state, right? Exactly. The worry is more that if he sticks around, that makes the governorship much more vulnerable. Remember, this is, well, next year is uh, an election year, and the governor is up for re-election. So somebody as wounded as this could put a state that hasn't elected a Republican as governor um, since the early 2000s uh, into, you know, into more uh, peril. It also helps that the lieutenant governor, who's the person who would step into this job, should Cuomo either step down or be impeached, is a Democrat and is a woman, um, which I think also uh, would be, a for many politicians, they'd say, oh, well, this is a much better look for us, right? To have in his place a woman who is taking over after these horrible accounts of sexual harassment. So, uh, look, I, I, I think, you know, so many people are making this uh, comparison between say what happened in Virginia, um, where the then governor Ralph Northam, it came out that in his college days there was a blackface picture. He alleges it wasn't him, but the the calls came for him to resign. It looked as if he was headed that way, and then the lieutenant governor also. Uh, a couple days later, there was scandal involving that person who is also a Democrat involving sexual assault. And uh, so the worry among politicians was, oh boy, uh, we can't have our governor step down, our lieutenant governor step down and give the opportunity for Republicans to take over in in the state of Virginia. But the place I think this is most analogous to actually, or the, the case that's most analogous is Al Franken. And this was in the era of Me Too as well. Senator from Minnesota, accused by many women of inappropriate touching. He was asked by his colleagues to resign. He ultimately did. And there is tremendous pushback, even now, against some of the women in the Senate who asked him to resign, specifically Senator Kirsten Gillibrand from New York, because he wasn't given due process. There was no ethics investigation. There was no... um, a fair trial in all of this. And even many Democrats, many liberals who say he was, he was pushed out um, for political reasons, that this was not a fair experience. So I think so many um, look at that case, look at Al Franken and say, you know what? Do not resign in the face of accusations. Stay and fight for as long as you can.
1: Gwen, does the attorney general's report count as um, due process for the governor in this case?
4: Well, that is sort of what, you know, many of his staunchest allies in the Democratic Party had not called for his resignations, and they changed their tune. So we have more than 160 pages of documentation and hundreds more appendices of evidence pointing towards this. That's why the head of the state's Democratic Party called for his resignation, one of his closest allies for years. And that's why he lost the sort of stronghold of support that he had in the state assembly, which is where any impeachment proceeding would begin. Having said that, they do not want to go through with an impeachment. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They just want him to resign. Right. Like they do. They don't want to have to take this vote. But the governor is sort of forcing their hand by not stepping down.
1: Gwen Hogan is a reporter for WNYC and Gothamist. Gwen, thanks so much for being here.
4: Thank you for having me.
1: And Amy Walter is editor in chief of the Cook Political Report with Amy Walter. And Amy, you don't go too far because you're going to stick around for the second half of our hour because I want to talk with you about what's happening in Ohio as well.
0: Can't wait.
1: This is The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. On June 8th, Terry McAuliffe won the Democratic primary for Virginia's open gubernatorial seat. In a distant fifth place, with less than 4% of the vote, was Justin Fairfax, the state's current lieutenant governor. It's a stark turnaround of electoral outcomes for Fairfax. Just four years ago, when he ran for lieutenant governor, Fairfax won the endorsement of the Washington Post, who described him as, quote, a bright, competent, well-versed, former federal prosecutor-turned-corporate attorney. Indeed, in 2019, Fairfax nearly ascended to the top spot in the Commonwealth when Governor Ralph Northam became embroiled in racial scandal after his 1984 medical school yearbook photo was unearthed, showing Northam dressed either in blackface or as a member of the KKK. Northam said he could not remember which of the two racist costumes he'd worn that night. In language similar to what we heard this week as party leaders called for Cuomo to step down, Democrats demanded Northam's resignation. This is what it sounded like in February 2019.
4: He's lost the authority to govern. He has to resign. It's in the best interest of the Commonwealth. It's in the best interest of the party.
1: The good news is, though, is that there is a zero tolerance and people do understand, and he needs to resign immediately to stop the pain in Virginia and, frankly, around the nation.
5: The governor of Virginia should resign. Uh, It's completely unacceptable. Uh, I'm sure he's lost the confidence of the people of
2: Virginia, and I've been very clear.
1: As pressure mounted, it seemed Northam was out and that he would be replaced by the young African-American Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax. It was in that context when the nation met someone I have known for decades.
3: Vanessa Tyson is her name. She says that Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax assaulted her in 2004. Now, he categorically denies these allegations.
1: Vanessa Tyson is a professor of political science at Scripps College in Southern California. I first met Vanessa more than 20 years ago. Having graduated from Princeton University with an award-winning senior thesis, she came to the University of Chicago to earn a PhD in political science, and I'd just begun working as an assistant professor in the department at UChicago. Vanessa's keen intellect, generosity of spirit, and deep commitment to racial and gender justice were readily apparent. This week, she sat down with me here on The Takeaway to discuss the news about Governor Andrew Cuomo and to reflect on her own very public journey over the past several years. I asked how she felt when she first learned about the New York Attorney General's report detailing Governor Cuomo's pattern of sexually harassing women
5: with whom he worked. I mean, I wish I could say I was surprised, but the reality is that I'm not. Uh, The Abuse of power tends to be rampant in our society, particularly political power. But, you know, we see abuses across every industry, within families, within communities, and so on. So, no, I'm not surprised. I asked her to
1: remember back to 2019 when she first learned about the racist photo scandal that threatened to unseat Virginia's governor.
5: Some of my friends in Virginia had told me that, it was very likely that Governor Ralph Northam was going to step down and that my rapist had been, would was going to get a promotion. And I remember I was actually at a conference and I was in a, a hotel room and I was just, it was a Saturday morning and I was crying in the shower, right, just sobbing in the shower because it seemed so unfair. I had tried to come forward before he was, before Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax was sworn in, but that didn't stop anything. And now it looked like he was going to become governor. And I was just horrified.
1: Professor Tyson's distress about the possibility of Fairfax's ascendance was heightened because she had disclosed the alleged assault before 2019, first to close friends and later in 2017 to the Washington Post.
5: What's interesting is that I actually tried to come forward in 2017. And this is fairly well documented. I, in December 2017, before Justin Fairfax uh, became lieutenant governor of Virginia, but had already been elected, I uh, spoke with the Washington Post on multiple, multiple occasions about what had happened uh, between him and myself in a hotel room in Boston during the Democratic Convention, Party Convention, the DNC of 2004, and you know I I did my best. To explain to them what happened, for three and a half months, we went back and forth. Uh, you know, uh, And then the Washington Post decided to uh, can the story, for lack of a better term.
1: According to the Washington Post, quote, The Post did not run a story at the time because it could not corroborate Tyson's account or find similar complaints of sexual misconduct, unquote. But this time, in 2019, there was another account of Fairfax as an abuser. Meredith Watson, a classmate of Mr. Fairfax, publicly alleged that the lieutenant governor sexually assaulted her in 2000 when they were both college students at Duke University. Watson told her story to Gail King on CBS this morning.
2: He did things that you shouldn't do to someone mm-hmm. without their permission. Mm-hmm. And I tried several times to get up and mm-hmm. leave and was pushed back down.
1: Lieutenant Governor Fairfax categorically denied the allegations made by Tyson and Watson. Both women asked the Virginia state legislature to hold hearings to investigate the claims. Democrats, who controlled Virginia's General Assembly, declined, repeatedly. Justin Fairfax is still the state's lieutenant governor. Ralph Northam remains its governor. I wasn't sure whether to be more angry with Cuomo's actions or with the Democratic Party, because even though they've been swift to call for his resignation, I remember Virginia Democrats were never willing to hold legislative hearings to investigate the claims that you and Meredith made about being sexually assaulted by Fairfax. Now, are you angry or am I just mad on your behalf?
5: I'm disappointed. Uh, But, you know, I've been following politics since I was at least three years old. So the reality is that, you know, I've kind of had a life long life of disappointment. Um, And so what I would say is that politicians, regardless of any, you know, whatever party they belong to are, you know, seek power and seek to maintain power. Um, So when the democratic legislators of Virginia opted not to engage in hearings, opted not, to allow me and other women uh, who had suffered abuse at the hands of Justin Fairfax, uh, you know, it showed where their priorities were and it was extremely disappointing. It's disappointing now. Um, but But again, I'm not surprised. I wish I were.
1: I I want to sit with that for a minute. Um, You're a political science professor. You were a candidate for office. You've been, as you point out, since you were a very young child, engaged in American democracy and elections. And yet what you say in response is, therefore, you're, you're used to a lifetime of disappointment, what does that say when women and maybe particularly black women who form the core structure of the Democratic Party see engaging in our democracy as setting ourselves up for a lifetime of disregard of our actual life experiences?
5: Well, I think if I, if I kind of marinated in that one for too long, I would be deeply, deeply depressed. Um, So instead I try to focus on what I can do to help, right? Uh, Because no matter what I've been through, there's always someone else who has had it worse. There's always going to be more women who have been victims of abuse I mean, more women and men who've been victims of you know, various forms of emotional, physical, and sexual abuse, including sexual harassment on the, at, in the workplace. So what I think about and what I try to focus on, and I think this has been a, a common trend amongst African-American women, right, is that we have a bunch of people that we need to help. It's not just about us. We are connected. There is sisterhood. And in that sisterhood, it means that we don't necessarily always stand for ourselves. It's that we're standing for all of us. Um, I think about the Democratic Party, and at times I certainly believe that the Democratic Party takes Black women for granted. I think that's a rather common phenomena. What I will say, however, is that as a Black woman, I am not going to let my fellow sisters down. I am not going to let all of the Black women and men who have been abused throughout their lifetimes in whatever way, I'm not going to allow them to be let down. So despite the shortcomings, if you will of the democratic party as an institution i think it's important that i as an individual you know stay involved and engaged in the democratic party but also right make sure that i stay true and authentic to who i am and stay true to the people you know who have been through so much pain and so much exploitation so that they know that they're not alone. So so I don't see it as a choice as much as I see my activism and advocacy and even my willingness to come forward under rather terrifying circumstances as a means to set an example and to try to help others know that they're not alone. And I cannot help
1: but to think about the fact that Joe Biden, as the head of the Senate Judiciary Committee in the U.S. Senate, also did not allow all of the women who had something to say about Clarence Thomas, he did not allow them to speak, that... It took him decades, decades to even acknowledge publicly and to apologize to Anita Hill. And that in this moment, when I hear him as president call on Andrew Cuomo to resign, I gotta say, I keep wondering if anyone cares when black women are the ones who are assaulted and abused, or if our political system is simply willing to take us as
5: collateral damage. What I would say is that black women throughout the history of this country have always been collateral but I would add to that black children and and, and black men right um, and as a consequence what happens is that we're put in this weird kind of situation of trying to survive amidst this you know palpable oppression right?
1: Help us to think about this moment with, um, governor Cuomo. Are there things that are not on the agenda in our public conversation right now that need to be,
5: you know, it seems like we're only recently talking about systemic racism, right? It's, you know, it's coming up. And of course there's plenty of backlash and so on and so forth. But what I want to think about is systemic abuse, um, and how powerful people, uh, Either not only abuse others and use their power as a means to abuse others, use their power as a means to further frighten and intimidate those that they've abused, right? Which I've personally been the recipient of. Um, I also want to think about how our systems and structures allow for abuse to continue and perpetuate. And really, what does it take for institutions to have the actual courage to reflect upon how they might, how they contribute to abuse that shapes our, that very much shapes and hurts members of our society.
1: Vanessa Tyson is Associate Professor of Politics at Scripps College in Southern California. Vanessa, thank you for joining us.
5: Thank you so much for having me.
1: We've reached out to Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax's office for comment, but have yet to hear back. If we do get a response, it will be posted at the takeaway.org. On Tuesday, Democrats voted in the primary for a special election to fill the congressional seat in Ohio's 11th district. Marsha Fudge vacated that seat to join President Biden's cabinet as Housing Secretary. Chantel Brown, the chairwoman of the Cuyahoga County Democratic Party, won the primary, beating out Nina Turner, a former state senator and co-chair of Senator Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign. Now, Ohio 11 is a safe Democratic district, and Brown is strongly favored to win the general election in November. Now, this single House seat, though, it's a big deal because the battle between Brown and Turner was billed as a surrogate showdown between the progressive and moderate forces in the National Democratic Party. Here to walk us through the special election primary in Ohio is Julie Carr-Smythe, an AP reporter based in Ohio. Welcome, Julie.
3: Happy to be here.
1: And Amy Walter is back with us to talk more politics. Amy is the editor-in-chief of the Cook Political Report with Amy Walter and former host of Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. Welcome back, Amy.
0: I am once again so very happy to be here.
1: <laughs> All right, Julie, I have to say I was surprised by the results. Turner looked like the front runner and had a lot more fundraising dollars. How was it that Brown won this?
3: Well, what we saw was this huge surge in the last several weeks of the campaign, and you are absolutely right. Nina Turner had been campaigning hard here for months, and um, she's a firebrand, fiery speaker, uh, inspires a lot of crowds who are favorable toward Bernie Sanders. And all of a sudden, Chantel Brown became the local favorite uh, establishment Democrats like Jim Clyburn and Hillary Clinton and others. Uh, hopped into the race and got behind her a bunch of unions uh, and a bunch of super PACs.
1: Amy, um, all politics are local. That's the great story. And yet this one was certainly hyperlocal, but also very much not local.
0: (laughs) That's right. My line now is all politics is local, except when it's not. And (laughs) more and more, it's not. And I think in many ways it was the sort of proxy fight between the Biden and Bernie Sanders wings of the party, but really, what it, what it is is not ideological. It is much more about the kind of person to sit in this seat in terms of their temperament, their personality. More important, whether this person is going to be a team player, which is what Chantel Brown was arguing. Right, I'm not only going to be a backer of Joe Biden, which Joe Biden won this district in the primary against Bernie Sanders. Hillary Clinton won this district overwhelmingly back in 2016 against Bernie Sanders. So saying, I'm going to be on the team, which Nina Turner has come out against both of those leaders when she was with the the Sanders campaign. I'm going to be on the team. I'm going to be a vote with leadership. You can't count on Nina Turner being part of the team. She is a, a sort of rogue Agent And when Democrats have just a narrow majority in the House, when Joe Biden's agenda depends on 50 senators sticking together and every single one of the Democrats in, in the House sticking together, we can't afford to have a rogue individual on the Democratic side.
1: Julie, help me walk through this a little bit, because in certain ways, Nina Turner's rogueness is precisely why she is who she is on a national stage. It was her willingness to go against um, the establishment uh, repeatedly at the state level that is part of what made her so popular. And also, isn't Ohio supposed to be pretty like independent thinking?
3: <laughs> That's a really good point. And of course, ironically, the day Ohioans made this choice was the same day that progressives in Washington um, achieved a big goal of pressuring President Biden to kind of roll back his, his reticence on this eviction moratorium. So, yeah, they were seeing some huge victories, and that kind of pressure was what they wanted to continue with her. But uh, I do think that Amy is right that. The idea that she might defect from a Democratic majority that's so slim was maybe frightening to some of these Democrats. Uh, We at AP just had had a poll that showed really the Democratic Party uh, loyalists are very happy with their party right now. They're happy with Biden. They're happy with what's happening in terms of the agenda. And they really wanted that to the extent that they poured into our state and started rallying for her and uh, Nina Turner, who had had a double-digit lead uh, early on and for a long time, according to, you know, whatever polling was available, just wasn't able to uh, overcome
1: So I'm also interested, Amy, in the kind of race gender politics of this. I mean, these are two black women running for a seat recently vacated by a black woman and held prior to that by another black woman, Stephanie Tubbs-Jones, who passed away suddenly and quite young in 2008. And I'm wondering about this idea of being an African American woman, but also you're meant to be a team player for the Democrats. I mean, that's something we get called on all the time by the party as voters and apparently as legislators. And yet the Congressional Black Caucus has also always been kind of the conscience of the party, pushing the party to be a bit more progressive than it otherwise would be. So is that changing?
0: Oh, that's a really good point. And remember, the CBC came out and um, endorsed Chantel Brown in this race. Jim Clyburn went out and campaigned for Brown, which Mm -hmm. while we think of him as as somebody who gets involved in politics, obviously his endorsement of of then-candidate Joe Biden was critical in the 2020 primary. He's not the kind of person who shows up in the individual House races. I think that why you saw the CBC engaged here was the sense of we do need a sort of sticking togetherness, right? That our ability to actually get things done, to shift the conversation, to make sure our priorities are put on the front burner is to be united. And to be united means that everybody understands that we got to work together on this team. And I think what really frustrated so many folks about Turner, Jim Clyburn said this specifically, was the fact that it's not just that she wants to push the establishment or to speak her mind, it's that she publicly attacked Clyburn, publicly attacked Biden, was circumspect uh, about her 2016 vote. In other words, that not only was she not a supporter of Hillary Clinton in the primary, but may not have voted for her against Donald Trump, and so I do think that you know there was a look we understand the important role that African American voters play in the election that they play to the, the core of the democratic base how important they are and at the same time if we want to get anything done we all have to be rowing in the same direction.
1: All right. Julie, let's talk about the the general election that is coming up. Now again, Ohio 11 should be a safe Democratic uh, district. But as I was just talking about around Black women holding this seat, turns out the Republican nominee is also an African-American woman. Is that going to make a difference?
3: You know, it's very interesting, isn't it? So Laverne Gore is her name, and she easily won the Republican primary. There wasn't really much competition. But uh, doesn't that in some ways begin to erase Uh, the ability of Chantel Brown to talk about um, black and women's issues in November as a way to choose her over Laverne Gore. Um, Gore is going to try to talk about the failure of democratic leadership in the city of Cleveland, where the functional illiteracy rate is 66% and it's the second poorest district in the country congressionally. So those are going to be things that resonate. We spoke to Chantel for an AP interview the other day, and she said, well, but Ohio has been uh, run by Republicans for uh, at the state level, and uh, that's kind of a misguided idea that Cleveland is somehow suffering because of Republicans. But it is uh, certainly going to be a conversation in the fall or heading into the fall. I just don't think there's any way that uh, a Republican can win this district. It went something like 60% uh, for Biden.
1: I hear you. And, and you know, there, there's a part of me that thinks, oh, this is this is kind of like that moment um, in uh, Illinois when, um, you know, Jack Ryan was running against this, you know, young guy, Barack Obama for the U.S. Senate. Ryan had to go and they brought in Alan Keyes and it was just, you know, it was a. It was a whomping, right? Alan Keyes had no chance, even though he was, you know, an African-American man running against another African-American man. But then there are also these moments when a scandal, for whatever reason, takes out the Democrat. And then, boom, you end up with a Republican. I think about Joseph Gow down in, um, uh, in Louisiana, um, Amy. And so I'm just wondering, you know, given that um, Nina Turner is who she is and she is a talker and she is someone who's not going to go quietly into that good night, is there a possibility either that Turner herself might try to make a bid as an independent candidate, or that um, she might work as a kind of spoiler in some ways relative to, to this uh, general that's coming up?
0: I mean, first of all, I love that you just dropped all of this knowledge on politics <laughs> in the last two seconds. giving Names that most people, even who are deeply involved in politics, don't remember, so a plus on that, but um, they're great examples. Um, look, you were right that Nina Turner, even soon after her loss did not uh, go quietly. She argued that it was this outside super PAC money outside of, of Ohio forces who really turned this race um, to Chantel Brown's favor. And so uh, this is somebody who, who is not, not only is she not happy about the results, but, but does believe that she was wronged in some way. Um, I don't know what the sore loser rules are in Ohio. In some states, you know, it, it, you actually cannot file to run as an independent if you've already run in a primary or mm-hmm. in an, in another race. Um, but I will say this, the bigger challenge, I think, for Democrats, especially in a state like Ohio, is that this is a redistricting year. And while there is an independent commission in charge of redistricting in Ohio, that map has to go in front of the Ohio legislature, which is Republican. they can overturn it. they can say we don't like this map, we're going to draw it ourselves. In which case Ohio could become a state where there really are only a couple of Democratic seats, one being this Cleveland seat and the other being one um, closer to Columbus in and around Columbus. And that to me is the bigger worry uh, for Democrats right now in that state that, There's really nothing left for the party except a couple of districts, this being one of them.
1: Amy, you're right. There is a sore loser law. I just looked it up. Thank you for reminding me of that thing, um, and, and, and for clarifying that. So it won't happen in that way. But I, I really appreciate your focus here on the, um, redistricting. And, and I'm wondering, um, Julie, if you have heard from state Democrats, right, in, in sort of as the work that you're doing, um, there and reporting, um, about, sort of um what they're facing relative to this question of of redistricting it's a, it's an issue facing us here in North Carolina you know it's huge in Texas. What is Ohio saying about this
3: absolutely the The first meeting of our redistricting commission is actually today, and uh it is going to be interesting because we are losing a seat due to population not uh Growing to the extent to keep what we have, and you're absolutely right. And I don't think that Nina Turner, you know, would want a Republican in that seat personally. I don't, I, you know, she may be a spoiler or be looking to something higher, but I think that uh, the Democrats desperately need to keep the Cleveland seat because that's what they have. Um, but we are hearing exactly that that it would be uh, only two Democratic seats, and they'll try to keep the other. I guess, 13 or 12 um, for the Republicans, who already control uh, the governor's office, every statewide office, the Supreme Court, and both branches, both chambers of the legislature. Um, But the Republicans are involved in a huge scandal right now themselves. We we had a uh, Speaker of the House uh, indicted in a bribery or arrested for bribery and racketeering and that is not by any means over uh just yesterday our republican attorney general uh, roped and looped some more individuals into that so that is facing them down in an election ne- year next year um but the the redistricting process was put in place by voters and they are highly supportive of fair maps we we really need them here we're one of the most gerrymandered states in the country and if you look at some of the districts they look like ducks and and snakes and everything else so um you know they will be paying attention according to the advocates who the reporters heard from yesterday including possibly going to court
1: Julie Carr-Smythe, an AP reporter based in Ohio, and Amy Walter, editor-in-chief of the Cook Political Report with Amy Walter, who has me Googling things in the middle of our conversation. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. It's
0: been great. Thank you.
1: That's all the politics we have for you today, y'all. But as always, we appreciate you tuning in. And before I head out, let me give a quick shout out to our fantastic team that helps to make the radio. Our producers are Ethan Oberman, Lydia McMillan-Laird, Shanta Covington, and Katarina Barton. Our line producer is Jackie Barton. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Our board operators are Milton Ruiz and Vince Fairchild. Jay Cowett is our director and sound designer. And Meg Dalton is our digital editor this week. David Gable is our executive assistant. And Lee Hill is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and I just work here. This is The
5: Takeaway.